Bring back the city of D. In honor of the lost city, what country would you get lost in if it meant Brad Pitt and Channing Tatum rescuing you? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and the answer is pretty much all of them, but I have this sense that Channing Tatum could really charm his way through the Australian outback. I'm at Patches, and I is Antarctica a country? Uh, that seems like somewhere I would not want to get lost in, but I guess if I'm with my old pals, Brad and Channing, it would be okay. Channing can't take his shirt off, though. What is his power there? How do, you, how do I know he can't take his shirt off? If anything, very, his power is ability cold. to take... A shirt off in the coldest temperatures. <laughs> yeah. That seems like I, I, I would be impressed. I mean, the answer, Katie, I think, is spooning for warmth. Um, mm-hmm. That's true. My name's Dave Gonzalez, and I'm going to say Texas. That would get me to Texas. Texas is a country unto itself. Mm-hmm. Um, they, would, they would like to tell you that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would love to agree with them. Uh, I am David Ehrlich, and I... We'll say Iceland, just because it's a very hard country to get lost in, but I would love to see Channing Tatum and Brad Pitt try. <laughs> I just feel like you're planning a vacation in Iceland. No, that's the thing. That I, was listening, I was listening very closely to the way Dave phrased the question, um, and there was no part of it that said that it had to be an unpleasant experience being lost <laughs> somewhere. So That's true. Uh, yeah. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 385. It is pandemic 105. It's the week of Wednesday, March 23rd. That's the day that in 1983, Ronald Reagan introduced uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which he called Star Wars, and they just yeah. let him. Man, Lucasfilm just didn't have the lawsuit power that the, the modern yeah. Disney we know now does, did they? I mean, it was right after, what, they finished, they were they they'd definitely gotten done with Return of the Jedi, so George Lucas at this point is probably like, good, forget it. <laughs> I don't, I don't want, want to make another Star Wars is over. Yeah, I'm going to go make some Indiana Joneses or something. Um, I should stay, say before I ask David if there were reviews, um, David, you don't know this, but at some point last week, uh, Dave was like, we keep getting reviews, so I'm going to show you David's uh, Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes score. And I'm told that whatever you accomplish, it was great, but I don't understand it. Uh, was, he showing you, was he showing you that I unlocked Sith Eternal Emperor? What were you I doing? was. Yes, <laughs> I was. <laughs> Um, Congratulations! Uh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, he's still basically useless on like gear level nine, nope. but uh, nope. it's a process. Nope. Anyway, um, anyway, I appreciate that that small uh, concession. Um, we do have one review, so that will be it for our Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes talk for this week. Uh, thanks to Nick from Wisconsin, who writes uh, "Young Millennial Weighing In." I also just want to say before I read anything from Nick from Wisconsin's review that. It was just thinking, I was just occurring to me because we're recording this on a Tuesday night because I was on a trip on our usual recording night on Monday night. And I don't think out of any of the reviews that we've read on this show over the years that anyone has pointed out or given a shit for releasing this podcast on varying days, basically whenever Dave has the time to cut together and post <laughs> yeah. it. Which feels like if I were a fan of a podcast, would be like my number one complaint but uh <laughs> I, I it's really it's great that our listeners uh, however many or few there are are so chill with it just you know the show, podcast showing up 
in the 48 hour window when it usually does and uh, being a little treat. Anyway, thanks guys. Um, Nick from Wisconsin says, hello, host of Fighting in the War Room. I posted a review in the past to remind Katie of Bennett Miller and her love for Foxcatcher. But the review read aloud last episode, yeah. providing a Gen Z perspective of Owen Wilson and J-Lo and either Dave Seven or Patch's musings on what scenes and movies played an influential role in scaring them at a young age, prompted me to think of what was my traumatizing moment. It didn't take me long to find one. To give some background, I was born in March of 1996. Whoa. So right around... And he's still a millennial. Uh, yeah, on this he's podcast, we refer word. to that as uh, year two PNYR... SC. I can find a shorter contraction of that, but it's the second year after the Rangers' 1994 Stanley Cup win. So oh, right yeah, around. I thought you were talking some... about that like year two before Titanic came out, which is really the before. I mean, there are a number of different. There are a number of different. Uh, the first you know, Skynet apocalypse was still upon us in 1998. <laughs> um, yeah. So right around what some would consider the cutoff between millennials and Gen Z. It could be due to my limited internet usage or the pop culture I consumed growing up, but I feel that I fit more with the former group, but I digress. To get to the reason I'm writing this review, the film that messed me up as a kid was Signs. I first Ooh. saw the trailer when going to see Reign of Fire in theaters. And being a kid who was into aliens at the time and the frightening tone established, I was unaware of who M. Night Shyamalan was then, it caught my interest. Flash forward to when it comes on home video, my family rented it from Blockbuster for movie night. Turn, if you're old enough to say my family rented it from Blockbuster on movie night, by the way. You're a millennial. You're, you're on. Yeah, you're probably a millennial. Yeah. You might be a millennial <laughs> if you're watching a movie during movie night on a TV that's resting on top of another broken TV. Turns out Ew. this was a bad idea. Uh, the if whole you thing remember Jeff Hawksworthy jokes, yeah. you might also be a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff okay. Foxworthy was being memed today by Netflix because uh, he has a new special for them. Um, wow. What's old is new again. The whole thing terrified me, but the scene in particular that would fuel for many a nightmare to come afterwards was the news footage birthday scene. Yes, uh, iconic. The sting of James Newton Howard's score right as the alien crosses the frame really sealed the deal. So that, my, that was my childhood trauma that I thought I'd share. Also, and I can't believe I'm on David's side with something, but No Time to Die is a good Bond song. Of course it is. It's an incredible Bond song. To hear the ire that came from Katie and Patches, you think it was a repeat of Sam Smith's writings on the wall, which should bring up that song. And remember, it winning an Oscar makes me sad that the non-Bruno song from Encanto will, or Encanto, will probably beat Encanto, will probably beat No Time to Die come okay. Oscar night. But then maybe we can all give Lin-Manuel Miranda and his style of music a much-needed break. But then again, I digress again. Keep up the good work. You are all deserving of praise. And the recognition by Time magazine, which named us one of the tennis podcasts of 2021, is fitting for a podcast of your quality. Thank you very, very much for weighing in, Nick from Wisconsin. A few notes. Um, if you haven't seen my toddler's iconic uh, tribute to the iconic shot you referenced from Signs, it's somewhere in the depths of my Twitter page uh, from a few months ago. Worth digging out, I think. Um, you guys know what I'm talking about. Or if you don't, shove it. Uh, no Time to Die, Iconic Gone Song, R.I.P. to Radiohead Spectre, ditched in favor of Sam Smith. Woof. I, uh, you know, historic mistake. Any other notes? Any other feedback on this review? Oh, <clears throat> I have a, a real digression, but I don't think there's going to be any other time to talk about this. But anytime anyone brings up Foxcatcher, I watched the first episode of Dope Sick. Have any of you guys seen any of Dope Sick? It's going to nope. be an Emmy show, so we may talk about it again. 
I don't think I'm going to watch more of it. I wasn't that into it. And Michael Stuhlbarg is doing basically the bad version of Steve Carell's performance in Foxcatcher. So if you think mm. Steve Carell is over the top in Foxcatcher, I would like for you. Steve Carell's version. Does that make it good? What? Yes. Steve Carell was good in Foxcatcher. I stand by it. And you should watch Michael Stuhlbarg to be like, oh, yeah, that's how even a really good actor can fuck this yeah. up. I'm a so. philatelist, a philanthropist. Yeah. But most of all, I'm just a man. I'm confusing this with, uh, um, <laughs> what's... <laughs> Uh, I'm uh, confusing the, it right. The it's Philip Seymour Hoffman, the master, <laughs> yeah. right, right. <laughs> uh, no, he wants, his, he wants him to call him Golden Eagle. Um, yes. Anyway, that was Good a great call. review. Uh, thank thank you. you very much, Nick. Uh, if you would like to leave us a review, have it read live on the show, please go on iTunes and Fighting in the War Room. Or you can email us, uh, especially if you are not in the United States and therefore your reviews don't populate as easily for us on the iTunes page. Where can you email us, Dave? F-I-T-W-R dot podcast at gmail.com you the cooling man you send you up freezing cooling nights and nine twos oh all right about the quality of deep water i think we can all celebrate that there is an erotic thriller with anna de armas on ben affleck just on hulu right now uh the two of them are in it as is tracy Letts screaming while driving a subaru and a whole fuck ton of snails mm-hmm. um and i might be making that all sound better than how i really thought deep water was it's adrian Lyons' first movie in like about 20 years honestly um it's an erotic thriller that to me was not like all that erotic or thrilling it had a weird like not a nod a lot of sex in it um but on an arm is looking great in a, a variety of back dresses and uh ben affleck glowering it's on hulu uh everyone should watch it and we all did watch it did anyone like deep water better than i did maybe? i mean i liked it i think the reason we're talking about this is really the hype factor i feel like it, it people were really excited for deep water right like the the return of adrian lynn and and this idea that no one could release Deep Water. I feel like it had an aura when it finally, when Hulu finally decided it was going to put it out because it was a Fox movie that was trapped uh, post acquisition by Disney and it didn't seem like anyone wanted to put it out because it wasn't part of the Disney brand anymore to put anything out that was mildly erotic. The movie is mildly erotic. I mean, Ben Affleck Do we think goes it down was on Anna Darmus. Anna Darmus pulls a pube out of her mouth. Like, she, she does. shows a Excuse lot me. of uh, there are, the there are his and, There are his and her matching pube scenes in yeah. this film. I mean, Anna, Dar- Anna Darmus does. This movie's rated R. Both, to be clear. But uh, her, one of her pubes, or her, at least her shaving her pubes, does factor in eventually. So both, the, both pubes come into right. play. So, so this movie was just became notorious for maybe it would never come out uh, because there was no environment for it to come out. But it's kind of a perfect Hulu dump it on Hulu kind of thing. Um, so I think people right were before ready Morbius to comes it. out, gotta have something on Hulu. Yeah, I think people were ready to to love it, and maybe there was too much excitement for the ero- the return of the erotic thriller, and that this is its weird own thing that can be judged on its on what it is and not what it should be or could be um Mm. and i thought it was pleasantly odd uh there's a lot of as you said it's it's less of an erotic thriller than ben affleck gnashing his teeth and just being a complete (laughs) and utter weirdo for most of the time i don't understand this couple's relationship you know where (laughs) she is just fucking everyone and flirting up a storm and getting drunk at parties and he just stands in the corner just 
seething with anger. Um, but that's that and is the weird relationship like, they have, Patches, and it feels we get just it. you're not you're not uh, repeatedly <laughs> cucked by your wife. Jesus. <laughs> I'm bragging. I'm bragging. I feel um, like we we use the term cuck sarcastically a lot, but this is the time to use that word. But don't you think that this is like very Patricia Highsmith? Like the tone is well, like, she, she adapted. She did. From her uh, yeah. Yeah. She she did write the book for which this is. Um, you know that that actually I'm glad you inevitably referenced Highsmith because uh, the differences between the movie and the book are what I find interesting about this adaptation, which it has to be said was written for the screen by the truly gobsmacking duo. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if they wrote together or separately on different drafts of uh, uh, different planes Sam of reality. Levinson, uh. or, exactly, <laughs> certainly from us uh, by Euphoria creator Sam Levinson. And Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium writer and director, Zach Helm. Uh, their heads he played combined, the Emporium. <laughs> he did. Um, their heads combined into this film. So what's interesting about the movie vis-a-vis the, the book is that the book, as Patches basically described in the plot, uh, you know, is about, about this married couple. They, in the book, live in a ritzy New England suburb. Um, and she is flaunting her sexual uh, affairs um, for, you know, there's a sort of cruelty and sadism to how she's doing this, and he's a recessive guy, and he pretends, or, you know, in speaking to her latest lover, uh, who he thinks is very dumb, and and Ben Affleck's character thinks is intellectually superior to, he references a recent murder, a recent disappearing person, and implies that he was responsible for that, with the intimidation, or the intimation, rather, being that if he keeps sleeping with Ben Affleck's wife, he's going to, you know, Ben Affleck's going to kill this guy too. And then uh, the idea of becoming a murderer and murdering his wife's lovers becomes a little bit more appealing and starts um, happening for real. But the, the big twist in, in the movie is the implication, which is sort of subtle at first and then increasingly obvious, that the wife character, Anna Armas, might kind of get off on that. Uh, might sort of find a little bit of a kink in the idea that her husband, uh, who is existing the other part of this passionless marriage, has finally found something um, that, that he's willing to sort of do for her, that he's willing to show his control. I mean, she laments in a way that would sound very retrograde to, I think, a lot of modern viewers, that she married someone who does not want to control her. Um, she doesn't feel his pa- any passion from him. And now, in these most morbid of circumstances, she is finally, as, as illegal and uh, terrible as it is, getting some stirrings of someone who's willing to fight for her um, in an animalistic sort of way. And I think the movie, the way that it subtly and then not so subtly plays on that, is a small tweak to the original text that makes this a completely different beast. Well, and they also, the text takes place in what was then contemporary late 50s. Uh, New England, whereas this takes place in modern day Louisiana, right? Uh, New Orleans, yeah. yeah. New or- yeah. So, um, for instance, them being like, of course we're not getting a divorce plays much differently after that period of time, I think, in American society. Yeah. Uh, and sort of like the idea that um, even after you have like a child that is going to like kindergarten or first grade every day, you're still getting together with your other like five swinging couples and going oh ham on the booze and marijuana <laughs> every got, week. Night. They got so much energy and free time. I don't understand. I mean, it, it's a movie. I get it. 
but it's like an episode of summer house like every weekend they have another theme party (laughs) at someone's house it's like what the fuck is going on and don't even get me started Uh, they i mean they are truly just deranged and don't even get me started on their daughter trixie who is six years old and obviously a budding serial killer uh and the final the final note the final moment of this movie is is just absolutely nuts just so much like weird violence and sexual aura like and then you have her singing song this is out of control different movie than anyone was expecting this is like david lynch or something this is very strange (laughs) i don't know It, it it is the kind of movie that um you know nick from Wisconsin's parents might have gone to see on a date night in like 1993 and just been like, yeah, okay, another Friday night at the movies. <laughs> um, but, you know, in the same way that they would have gone and seen Sliver or, uh, you know, Indecent Proposal, which is an Adrian Lyne film, um, or something along those lines. Um, and I, I think, you know, the anachronistic element of it that Dave was alluding to is not only true to, you know, when the movie takes place now versus when the original story was written and set. But when this kind of movie was in vogue versus the world is being released into now where everything about all these characters feels weird as hell. Yeah. Yeah. About like halfway through this movie, I'm like, is this movie going to pass the Bechdel test? And I'm like, this movie doesn't fucking care if you're asking this question. This this movie has never heard of the Bechdel test. uh, Yeah. It's settled settled down. This movie (laughs) has Tracy Letts saying something like, it's a noir tinge. I think I'm bringing something, you know, unique to it. And you're supposed (laughs) to kind of laugh at him. But then I'm like, but maybe I wasn't supposed to kind of laugh Tracy at Tracy Letts is is bringing the comedy in every in every scene. He is the MVP. I mean, one of my no. favorite lines of the of the movie of the year is going to be him screaming at his daughter when he realizes like that he's been caught <laughs> following Ben Affleck. He's like, "Get out of here, Goldie! Get out, Goldie! Goldie!" <laughs> just like, what are you screaming? You're just screaming nonsense. And, the, and the car is, chase at the end of the movie, the, the car is out chase of where control. he's. He's just screaming, fuck you, motherfucker, and trying to text and drive while He's in, like, hot pursuit of Ben Affleck. This is a book. Uh, Tracy Letts absolutely knows that this is funny. Yeah. And uh, he is having a really great... I mean, Ben Affleck is biking at in, like, a, in a scene reminiscent of Donald Kaufman's screenplay, The Three, from Adaptation, and the race between man and horse. It's the bike versus car and he is, uh, he is, Ben Affleck is biking faster than Tracy Letts can drive. <laughs> and he's, uh, it all ends badly. Um, but I, you know, there is, uh, Adrian Lyne, he's 81 years old now. Um, he's still, I, I feel like he, you know, this is a very stilted and strange movie. There is kind of an inert quality about it. There is, um, does he know what he's doing? Feeling that it wants to be question. sexier than it is, but it, I feel like he does still know what he's doing. I mean, the the way this movie lands in its own sort of roundabout way to get back to its opening moment, there is a sort of symmetry that makes sense to what the couple's doing. And I think that Anna Darmus's character, her um, as de- as deranged as she seems at the start, I do think that her psychology and the way that she's thinking about her husband and all this does sort of click into place. By the end, it's a more complicated than it was in Highsmith's novel, but um, and, and not necessarily more modern, but less morally rigid. It's it's morally flexible in a way that I think honors where the character starts better than uh, the novel might do. Mm. I think that they, they they have some pretty some performances that know what type of movie they're in, like uh, you guys mentioned, but also Affleck and Armas. And I like a lot of how it's shot, but I don't 
think I like the story, or at least the assemblage <laughs> of the story that they found uh, yeah. in whatever happened between. Please use story this movie. in uh, air quotes when you say that because it's a story. Well, but also like this movie, uh, there's rumors that it was longer when uh, you know Disney inherited it from Fox. So I I don't think it's above uh, reproach in terms of its editing. I don't. I think it could have been cut down a little bit to make it a Hulu night viewing that maybe was a little mm. less weird. There just feels I, like some stuff in between act two and three where it's like we jump, we start jumping through time a little bit. Well, faster. not a lot happens. I mean, as, as my wife yeah. to me halfway through the movie, she's like, can there be more murder maybe? Or like, could something <laughs> well, start happening? I mean, and I'm like, no, snails no, no, are a prominent about. motif here. Yeah. This movie is not in a hurry. Um, it, it wants I feel to like there was on... something cut in the beginning that explained why Ben Affleck's character is so inert. Like, he's just there. He's furious at his wife, but he's not going to say anything to her. Like, they have some kind of arrangement, but he doesn't like it. Well, he like, feels pretty bad well, for inventing I, technology that created drones. He doesn't seem to feel they, that bad No, I, I, don't, I don't think that the movie guilts him for that, um, or that he wears, internalizes the guilt. I think it's more that he's just complacent. That he got too rich, too young, married a beautiful wife they had a psychopathic daughter who has not fully uh, blossomed into a serial killer quite yet and they are and he is just sort of like I, I don't need to fight for anything anymore and he married somebody who needs to be desired uh, aggressively at all times and has absolutely no compunctions about going out you'd almost think to like the desire. snails they need to be starved otherwise they're poisonous whoa <laughs> Yeah, yeah I feel like um, there was. I, I was not crazy about Ben Affleck in this, and like having he was no. great in both the Tender Bar and the Last Duel last year. Like I, you can see him do a lot with characters that are necessarily thin, but he was he's so flat the entire time, and it just it didn't feel like a character to me. It just felt like he wasn't asked to do. Flat? I mean, uh, do you don't well, love that scene in the beginning when he's toying with uh, his wife's new yo, boy toy yeah, when that, he's like, "I murdered, I murdered." Those the guy. weird scenes where he like dips into like play threatening are great and then the rest but of the Katie. time he's just like completely but or the scene where he's like with the stick and kate tracy let's catches him and there he's like oh i don't know i'm here with my stick like it's funny Katie, let me let me ask you something what's okay. the difference between what's the difference between ben affleck in this movie and ben affleck in the two other movies that you reference oh well, i mean the last duel he's bonkers that's not a no, but he's he's, less... he's hot as hell in this one. Oh, and I mean, did he's... you see the gender bar no, no one's. The ten, I mean, the tender bar no is a, a movie that you just made up for the for the purposes of a straw man argument. <laughs> no, that's fair. Podcast that's episode. Fair. But I, I did see the way back, which is a very good movie, in which he is very good, and he's also bloated as hell in that one. Uh, but I, I think kind of what I'm getting from from uh, what you were saying is that like hot Ben Affleck, there's not a lot for him to work with here. I think like that is sort of taking the lead. It's when you fuck with him a little bit. When he's got a, a dyed blonde goatee, mm. um, or is puffing out so because his liver is about to you know, rot out of his body. Yeah, I mean, like extract. Yeah, extract the Jason Bateman movie. Ben Affleck's that we all movie. Anyway, my 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 theory. Yeah, we all saw extract at a screening, of course. I <laughs> remember we loved well it. with Mila Kunis. America had extract fever. Uh, we had to extract people from the theaters <laughs> when it was over, just to the, they go back to their lives. But I think. Uh, if I can draw a conclusion from uh, two or three films that Katie referenced, the, the equation for Affleck now is that if he's too hot, it's boring. But if you ugly him up somehow, uh, he'll deliver an interesting performance. That's my theory. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. There's uh, uh, like this very choppily edited back into the movie 
sequence of him uh, drowning a gentleman. And there's one shot where he's like approaching his victim and he kind of hunches and all his Batman muscles pop out. And you suddenly see him as like a threatening physical presence. And it's like, it's weird because the movie knows he could do that, but really doesn't use that as much as they possibly could, considering how quickly he goes from seemingly calm to threatening. Uh, there's another scene where he uh, realizes that his wife is seeing another person because he gets home and there's some flowers on the table. And when she like leaves, he goes and he like throws the flowers in the trash can. And I'm like, is this a, is he bored about this moment? Are we supposed to see him be yeah. violent? Because the movie goes right down the middle with it. And there's a little bit too much of that riding that edge. But again, I wouldn't be against that if this was like a huge mood piece. With, uh, you know, we're supposed to dive into everybody's psyches and we're not really that interested in the murder. But that's like only the first hour of the movie. The second hour of the movie, we're supposed to be very interested in the murder. So it just seems it's like a, it, it seems just, odd you know, to me. I, it, it's hard to argue that this movie is not odd and misshapen. Um, and <laughs> oh, I, mean, yeah. I think even people like me who took a certain pleasure in watching it uh, could not could not argue anything else with a straight face. Uh, but I think it's eccentricities. It's also, I watched this and, and did not feel like, oh my God, how did Disney bury this masterpiece? I was like, I would not know what to do with this movie right. in this climate if yeah. I were behind it either. <laughs> this is um, the type of movie that we were supposed to not get anymore, which is just like not a home run and not an IP. I mean, this is the so. kind of movie that I wish, also... I wish on Netflix or, or the streaming, the streamers were, were able to to make like weird people's semi-star driven experiments like this is what the mid-budget on streaming should afford people right like it's classier than anything netflix puts out um why can't they hire a director who hasn't well, made a movie in 10 it, or 20 years I, well i mean because adrian line is who you get for something like this i'm sure he really willed this project into existence but i sure. also feel like um it is not if you watch something like unfaithful which did get oscar attention and looks you know fantastic and I'm guessing it was made for a lot more money. Um, you know, this this does feel more Netflix, and it is a lot more shot for TV. There, there's a lot of medium shots. It's a lot of. Uh, it's not very much atmosphere. Uh, it took me half the movie to realize. Uh, you know, mostly because my half of my screen was obscured by a watermark that was my email address. Um, that they were not in Massachusetts. I mean, this is not. It's not giving you a lot of. Uh, a lot of ambiance really? here. I mean, their apartment yeah. is so clearly New Orleans. I, I actually, I, I really mean, love the, the location movie, shooting. Like, it looks like a real house. It streets. looks like they're in New well, Orleans. It, is a real house. it looks like they're roaming. Um, um, they they did actually shoot in, shoot in real houses. Yeah. I will give them that. Uh, but they, uh, it, it does, it definitely feels like a few notches down from the craft presentation that we're used to, and even an Adrian Line film. But I think it's not that it's like, is it supposed to be funny or is it supposed to be prestige uh that is the middle ground it gets lost in i think it's like uh, you know it's like yeah no it's the prestige thing sorry i'm it, it was like is it supposed to be funny or serious i think for me it gets stuck between is it supposed to be prestigious or is it supposed to be sort of satirical a or or a lark and i think like that is a line that movies for adults used to be a lot more comfortable threading um and not necessarily having to pick one or the other and nowadays I think we are a little bit quicker to put things into boxes, and when they don't fit cleaning something, we sort of don't know what to do with it, and everybody has a laugh. Um, you know, I, 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 I would be happy to feel more movies like this that have this kind of 
bizarre, unclassifiable energy that when, you know, by the time you reach uh, Tracy Letts screaming, fuck you, autocorrect, as he drives through a ravine <laughs> and Ben Affleck's chasing him, you're just sort of like, what am I watching? Um, it's better than a movie that you know is going to end with lasers flying from the sky. So I'll take it. Wash him deep where the tides are turning. And if you fall, and if you fall, hold my hand. Ooh, baby, it's a long way down to the bottom of the river. For our mini segment this week, I'm, I'm taking over to do both some shameless promotion and surprise are my co-hosts because... I, we haven't really discussed what we're doing here, but I have a plan. Um, this week on Polygon, I'm getting something accomplished that I've been trying to do for a while. Uh, something called Who Would Win Week, which kind of originated with me and a coworker talking about, oh, a million people are going to, uh, when Avengers Infinity War comes out, everyone's going to be talking if Captain Marvel and Hulk can punch each other the hardest. Like, who's the strongest Avenger? And that kind of nonsense. And us loving that brand of nonsense, but also us knowing how toxic it can become um, in the wrong hands, in the wrong internet hands. And so this package that we put together on Polygon is really all about who would win conversations and the thrill of them and when they can become toxic and also just indulging in some of the ludicrous who could uh, who would win isms um, and, and debates and versus topics. And we've put together this huge bracket on the Polygon Twitter that has totally befuddled Katie. I think there's a, I have a screen cap of your tweet or your IM, Katie, that I had to share within Polygon Slack that was just like, what is this? Because <laughs> Katie could not fully grasp why we would create a March Madness bracket where like Kirby and Garfield are going against each other or like why Goku and the PS5 would be in some same bracket or something. Um... It's very strange. It's very us, but at the end of it, Wait, it is Goku it is, is fighting the uh, the idea the PS5? of the PS5. A, a single not PS5? yet. Not what? yet. When we he say would fight. Goku is going to have mean? to take Pikachu in our latest round for him to get to the to the PS5 eventually, because PS5 exists in the bracket with Hester Prynne and Superman. But, uh, people with but like, I, the, all these things <laughs> except for one are characters that you know you could. Understand a sentient in their no, world. No, I think he, I think he missed five. Has a, the uh, PS5 Pat, Pat is very just, alive. Yeah, yeah. Say again the four categories you use to break these down. Oh. I think that's what David missed. Yeah, ice powers uh, is is one category. <laughs> Letters on your chest. Uh, hungry mm. boys. That's B O I S. And uh, oh, uh, Thanksgiving parade balloons was the fourth category. It's complete and utter nonsense. Confused. I am more confused than I you was should be. It's go, just go about, it is an ecstatic expression of, of the March Madness. Here's what we're doing in this mini-segment, though. Because I'm so high on who would win challenges, I wanna, I've want i devised just a few versus scenarios, and I want your gut reactions and picks here. Who funds um, Polygon.com? Are they getting the people, their money's worth? They are <laughs> definitely getting their money's worth. Are they making Are your problem? shareholders in revolt yet? <laughs> you know what? I am a brand of the young. I'm a brand of the internet. Everyone gets it except you guys. So you guys should feel ancient and old and silly. Uh -huh. um, but here's the oh, thing. This, Play this my is what game. I needed to feel I'm ancient. the Riddler. Yeah, yeah. There's a game. There's a game. Um, Let's do it. There is a game. So, Katie, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up a versus scenario for you. You have to, you have to I mean, figure I, out how you're going just... to decide this. Ready? I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but shouldn't this be patches, matches, but the different... Definition Ooh, of matches. Oh, yes, this is patches match versus wow. matches. Yeah, Match there we go. Patches matchups. Uh, I still yeah, don't understand how we're defining fighting. Is the idea that I get to define the fight? 
I think you can. I think you can decide who would win. I mean, we could say it's in a, and this is the best thing about the package is that we've had to kind of figure out how we want to set up our, our verses. Not everything is a fight, Katie, because I don't like, I don't condone fighting. Um, I, I, you know, you have to pick your winner in whatever way you need to pick them. But here's my situation for you, which is Jack Dawson versus Romeo from Ro Romeo plus Juliet. Who would win? Who would win? Win what? Win what? <laughs> Who would win? And they're both well, okay. dead. Who would win? Well, is if it was it, Jack is it just Dawson Katie, or can I, can I weigh in I don't on know, their swooning? Who'd I win your heart? I think Jack Dawson definitely has more survival <laughs> skills. I'm imagining like who would like win what like, would you the Titanic sinking. Oh, well, yeah. I think that uh, Romeo would both Romeo, die at the end of their Ro No, Romeo would have just died way faster. are particularly well known for their survival skills, I have to say. <laughs> Jack makes it a long time, all right? Jo Rose never would have made it without him. Uh-huh. Romeo fucking gives up so fast. He doesn't even wait to see if she's actually dead. He doesn't check for breath. True. He's Romeo like kind of dumbass. He's also like 15. So. Yeah, yeah, fuck such Romeo. A dumbass. Jack. Fuck Romeo. Um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't come up with parameters for any of these. So you also have to come up with parameters and then make a decision. You have to choose faves. Um, David, here's, here's, here's one for you. Paddington mm. versus Emily from the World of Tomorrow. Who would win? Well, win? which Emily from the world of Prime? Emily oh, Prime or one of her questions? I'm going with Emily Prime. Okay, Emily Prime is four years old, so I yes, think Paddington I know. would would probably. But Paddington has a childlike intellect. In between, <laughs> uh, in between uh, two I'm saying the verses here is like getting home if they get bread. lost in the mall. That's the competition. Who would get home first if Paddington and Emily were both lost in the mall? Oh, I mean Paddington definitely because Emily would end up in another dimension. You know, many years in the future, and 18 minutes later would probably end up exactly back where she started, um, not at home, but back in the mall <laughs> after having like gone on a whirlwind tour through time and space. Uh, Paddington would be in a bin uh, talking about how good it is to be a bin. He would be in the back of a garbage truck. He would be kicked around on a train, but eventually he would accidentally the, get the, home. Well, the friends that he's made along the way by virtue of his oh, kindness, okay. namely the Browns or some of the like Knuckles McGinty. Um, that's Knuckles with an N, or some of the people, uh, you know, from from his community uh, would come and spirit him home just in time to meet on Lucy. So I think you have to probably go with Paddington. In the there day. you go. Okay, yeah. Dave, this is an actual, I see this as an actual fight. The Night King from Game of Thrones versus Venom. Who would win? Eddie. <laughs> this is some, like, we didn't have Game Pro in the age of uh, Game of Thrones, but, like, this is some just dumbass, gnarly bro shit. From yeah, culture. yeah, yeah. Who'd win? Um, you know, it's tough. Venom, Venom. is a symbiote. He can just yeah, latch Venom is a people. symbiote. Right. So I'm gonna say uh, Venom, spe specifically because yes, he can just latch onto people, but that also means he could jump hosts. But can't the Night King uh, turn people into like extensions of the Night King? Yeah, but the Night the Night King's the top of the pyramid, right? So if you kill the Night King. That's that's it. If you mm. kill Venom's host, Venom moves on, and you still are fighting Venom. But if you kill the Night King, there's like nobody backing you up. You could basically just take the North. So I'm gonna say Venom. How do you is kill a Venom? This one. Uh, I just throw it into a sun. All right, I'll go with that. Well, the Night King can't do that. He's too cold. So you know, it's the Venom. Just everything stacks up for Venom. Okay, Katie. This Andy. is this is a wrestling match. We're doing more of these. The Fox, yeah. <laughs> the Fox family from Fantastic Mr. Fox or versus Team Foxcatcher. <laughs> no, the Fox, Fox family is way more resourceful 
I'm really just thinking about like who's surviving a nuclear war or something like that. And wow. who's got the skills. Okay, um, who would wait. survive a nuclear war? Fantastic the fo- Mr. Fox, the Fox or the They would dig underground and steal shit. All they need. Yeah, they're fine. I mean, uh, Team Fox, Fox Catcher as... has the DuPont fortune at their disposal. Yeah, but they have some well-established logistical hurdles within the organization. I don't <laughs> think they're going to get past. I mean, the foxes are not cockroaches. They will not survive the apocalypse. Have you seen? Yeah, they dig a hole underneath a grocery store, and then they get to do whatever they want, and then go hide. They're good. How far do you have to dig a hole to survive, like, atomic blast? Not asking for any real-world reason, right? <laughs> um, David, uh, the, just two more here. Uh, David... The, uh, who would win? I have no idea what the setup here is. Carol versus the Lady on Fire for the portrait of the Lady on Fire. What do you think? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> Carol was Carol was a person, and the portrait in the portrait of the Lady on Fire was a painting. So, I think, but the lady I from think, the portrait. Well, I see a chance for for harmony here, and that Carol could simply hang the portrait of a Lady on Fire on her wall. <laughs> Um, and she and Therese Belovit could, could look at it uh, and keep it in their living room of the apartment they presumably get together after that movie ends. Um, so I, I guess Carol <laughs> yeah, would perfect. win, but okay. who, what win. is worth more? I think by the time we get to 1950s New York, the portrait from The Portrait of a Lady on Fire oh, yeah. is worth so much that on the street market, like, who's going who's gonna to be more valuable if we're going to go down in that metric? Maybe the portrait. I don't know. Can Carol yeah. afford the portrait? She's oh, rich. That's a good question. Can she ever obtain is it? Is she that rich? I don't know. Dave, we have to end on, on the obvious here, which is please finally pick a winner. Tom Holland Spider-Man versus Andrew Garfield Spider-Man versus Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. Who would win if they were just uh, Andrew, Andrew Garfield's Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. Really? Yeah. His girlfriend's dead. His aunt is like Tony around. Tony Spider-Man has unlimited webbing. Sure, comes out sure. Of his but he's also the one that's like uh, stopping uh, Tom Holland from beating the goblin to death. Whereas to- uh, Andrew Garfield's way is like, I-, I became rageful. I stopped pulling my punches. You just piss off Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. He has, no- he has nobody holding him accountable anymore. Tom Holland's Spider-Man has Stark tech. I mean, I had Stark Tech. Oh, now geez. he just has a sewing machine no and some blue lycra. Exactly. Even Team Foxcatcher could beat him. See, Katie, I'm this is what Who Would Win is all about. <laughs> okay. Do you understand now? Is this like a thing that like nerds <laughs> have been doing for decades famously and I just didn't know about it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Who Would Win in a Race? Superman versus The Flash. That's even, that even made it into a Simpsons episode. Now you understand, Katie. Now I understand. Polygon.com. That's how we end segments, right? Hulu. This week I got to assign you guys television, which is very satisfying. I'm watching a lot of TV right now, uh, even though the Oscars aren't over yet. And I have enjoyed watching Severance so much, which I actually watched in like a huge, gigantic binge and have kind of like had to go back and remember what happened uh, when, because it is 
a lot of it is set in one place. So kind of remembering what happens at what point in the story can be difficult. And I should probably say full disclosure from the very start that a very good friend of mine, Anna Oyoung Munch, wrote uh, for the show. She's credited writer on episode five, The Grim Barbarity of Optics and Design. So I am not a uh, unbiased source on this show at all. But I think it's really great. And you guys agree with me. So uh, it can be less me. <laughs> we don't have to lie for Anna. Honestly. <laughs> now I don't know. Yeah. Now if you guys had hated it, I would have just uh, slowly taken it off the docket. Um, but it is this really um, intriguing and kind of simple sci-fi premise that expands from there in which people who go work for this huge, mysterious company, Lumen, we still don't really know what they make or do, nor do the people who work there because they, uh, the people who work on this one severed floor agree to have their brain surgically altered so that when they are in the office, they are essentially a different person. And when then they leave work, their brain switches into their outside self. Their innie and their outie are uh, essentially separate people. They don't, neither knows what the other is doing. Um, but as you might guess, that system is uh, not as simple as they would like it to be. And uh, from the very beginning of the first episode, you kind of see the potential it has to break down. Um, I think we do want to spoil Severance up to what has aired, which is episode six titled Hide and Seek, which aired on March 18th. So um, if you're listening to this now, that's where we're going to start. But I will say, um, before we get too spoilery, that... Yeah. I, I would be curious about your first episode impressions of the show versus how you feel about it now. Because when I first started watching it, I'm like, this is like a weird heightened. I was trying to put my finger on exactly what was bothering me about it. Is it like fake Jean-Pierre Genoux? Or we were talking about Zach Helm earlier. And I'm like, is this a kind of smarter than everyone else type uh, that the Helmian way. Uh, what, what was the Will Ferrell movie that I was literally just talking about before the call? Stranger like, than Stranger fiction. Than fiction. Just like fiction. I'm going to do this meta thing, and there's going to be it's going to be just a weird show, and weird things are happening. Patches um, thought that, that since my, Zach my, Helm has a writing credit on Deep Water, that suddenly we're in the Zach Helmessance, and he's everything. Although there there is a connection between Deep Water and Severance, which is uh, the actor. Um, whose name is slipping my mind, even though I remembered it earlier. Michael Chernis, uh, who plays one of the friends in Deepwater and plays Rickon, uh, the brother-in-law of... Whoa, I did not notice him in Deepwater at all. That's wild. Um, But yeah, I just thought this was going to be kind of like a goofy, look at this weird thing at our weird place of work and and just be... I, I don't know what I was expecting, but this show goes a lot further. And yeah. it, it gets a lot more character driven. I think Adam Scott is quite brilliant in this show. I, I loved him. And I remember it just rem- reminded me that before Parks and Rec, Adam Scott was kind of an indie drama darling doing all these little movies that people probably still have not seen. And uh, he's a great actor. Wait, wait, hold on. I just have to say uh, the reason you may not have noticed him in Deep Water is because he is definitely not in Deep Water. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, in my head, in my severed mind, I decided that he was in Deep Water. Um, and I could see in reality, him fitting in in that friend group. Completely. Absolutely. Um, he could totally be hanging out with Dash Mihawk, who was, of course, in Romeo and Juliet. To take us back to our mini segment, um, wow. one of my, well, you know, I love seeing Dash Mihawk show up, and Lil Ray Howery, Lil Ral Howery, um, but he isn't. <laughs> but I would have gone. I until uh, until Patrick just said that I would have gone to my grave believing adamantly that he was in Deep Water. So anyway. I, talking about the way that the mystery unfolds patches, I wanted to talk to Dave about Lost because I, I saw a couple people, couple people compare this to Lost and that wasn't something that had crossed my mind. Um, but I think in terms of the way the mystery unfolds and the way something completely inexplicable happens, 
and then it gets built upon or maybe not answered. Like it's withholding a lot of information from you in this first season and being really careful about it. And that does remind me of Lost, even if I think the the themes and there's not really the level of spirituality to this so far that there was in Lost. Um, but Dave, you're the Lost expert. But Do you see that too? Yeah, I started divide. binging. Sorry. I was going to say the, the, the Audi divide is very island off island. Uh, yeah, that's true. I can see that. Yeah, I mean. Basically, the thing that uh, Severance is doing, I mean, Patches, to go back to your question of how watching it has sort of evolved since the first episode. Um, the first episode I saw it, I'm like, what a neat little quirky premise. This is going to be fun. And, you know, at some point, you know, they're going to, like, lead a revolt or something. And we're going to have, like, a, you know, I was picking up all the Easter eggs, assuming it was operating more like a pilot. When really, when the second episode started, I'm like, oh, no, this is every story that it's showing you feels like it's very purposeful. Like when you see a scene, you're like, oh, I want to see what this person does next. But the entire structure of when you're getting to see those things is based around maximum impact for world building and mystery solving. So Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, really what they're working on in terms of like uh, scary numbers and eliminating them is only really dealt with like head on in the second episode and then you sort of like drift off. And as we get weirder and weirder, we don't actually have scenes of them doing like their base job. And I'm pretty sure that's because it, once you put all the pieces together, there's going to be some way to have like solved it. So what they're doing is trying to uh, divert realities um, until they're the most impactful for these single episode story. But it's kind of hard without the... spoiling. Go ahead. Yeah, well, let's just say, if that's the case, they're doing a very good job of not letting the mystery of it all take center stage, because while I am curious about what they are doing on, down there and, you know, what all these things mean and what it means that Patricia Arquette is one of several characters who is uh, not as severed as she seems and so forth. Um, Light spoilers from here on out. I don't I think she really... severed it all. No, I, she isn't. I, I mean, that's yeah. The implication not... is that she, she's <laughs> yeah. very well aware um, of what's going on everywhere. Okay. Yes, I mean, and and that she seems severed and she isn't. That is that is what I mean. Um, but uh, I'm really enjoying the show as a, as a show that I, I can sort of enjoy for its surface pleasures and its obvious metaphor. As a show about the difficulty of the work life balance, about the overreach of capitalism, about the slavishness of working for major corporations where you don't entirely know what it is that you are doing, but you trust that it's important because it's treated as such. And then in, in the most recent episode that aired in episode number six, uh, it's a metaphor for unionizing. Um, when you have the, the strength of the various departments who are kept at odds with each other in this weird retro futuristic new German new wave kind of underworld that's very reminiscent of the decor of like a world on a wire, an old uh, Rain Over Fassbender films um, with the green carpets and the white walls and so forth. And uh, oh yeah, the color you, theory is definitely around in this series. Yeah, but uh, and you have the departments. Christopher, I mean, it's so great seeing Christopher Walken in a meaty role like this again for the first oh time my in God. so long. Um, He's so good on this show. He is so I mean, good. The, the cast is absolutely incredible. He and John Turturro uh, in this sort of gay uh, romance. It's hard to classify exactly how far the romance goes but um it's interesting in this sort of retrograde and again retro futuristic vibe that their rom their romantic interest in one another is not at all frowned upon by the lumen handbook and the rule of care it's just about a greater sense of fraternization that i think is dangerous because the company sees 
the power of its employees joining together, um, yeah. which it, it you know very actively breaks up. Um, and so there are all these things in very very broad terms that I think anyone who's worked in the workforce in any capacity can can relate to that are sort of taken to their logical and sort of Orwellian extremes. Um, and you know I think the the greater mystery is interesting, but every new wrinkle six episodes in every new episode has had a, a new wrinkle to that central metaphor um, in a way that it's enjoyable just for that alone. Yeah. Um, even something yeah. as well, simple I mean, as like riffing on a, on the pun of what the break room is. As in or the riffing room on where the pun of labor in this most recent episode, like literally yeah. as giving birth and doing work are two things you could be, you could be severed for both labors. Mm-hmm. Which I, I, when that happened, I was like, this show fucking knows what it's doing. That's the so thing. Being, and that, we're and being taken on a ride. I feel like, or, well, on two, on two levels, we described it as a science fiction show, and I think it definitely is and deserves that title because it's, I did not expect, um, in this, you know, my one brain goes to work and my other brain lives outside. Okay, that could be very simple and almost eternal sunshine where it's like you just have the twist in order to tell a very grounded, realistic story with just that one little thing. But now we're talking about how everybody in Lumen is like, you're cr- you've created an entirely new soul, and all of these people yeah. are their own people, and it's like, this is get- getting big picture. Like, all of these people only exist within work, so when they leave, they wake up again right away almost, and, and they're constantly in work. They cannot escape, but they have their own personalities. They may n- not be like the people on the outside, their Audis. Um, they're and I find that in direct conflict with their Audis. Right, as, uh, as we see traces of. Um, so I just yeah. find that, like, oh, they've accidentally created new life. Through well, this but that so life kind is of a very bigger purgatorial sci-fi idea. Yeah, it's a very purgatorial existence because there is no escape for them. I mean, they're at the mercy of their Audis, but they, um, yeah, they they literally cannot escape, as we see at length in the opening episodes. And there's the yeah. like severed floor. But, there's a cool um, visual style, like when they go in the elevator to go down to Lumen, like their faces. They change the lens slightly or, or have some sort of zoom effect. Well, I think it's they... just a reverse. It's a blob it's, it's out. The vertigo. It's the vertigo yeah. effect. Yeah, right? yeah I think yeah. so. Um, it looks cool. But it, yeah, it's it's effective. It's subtle. I mean, the show looks absolutely spectacular. Um, ben yeah. Stiller directed a handful of episodes for his company, Red Hour Films, produced it. Um, but it looks exquisite. Well, whoever it, the director was for the past three episodes is also doing an amazing job. Like, the yes, show I, looks I really see, good. I can't. Can someone do? I mean, oh, I, I dare I call just, upon patches oaf, to pronounce oaf her name. Yeah, don't even no. Oaf. Oaf can't. Be it cannot right. be. It can't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if any of our Irish listeners could. Uh, a o i f e. But she, she's I, doing amazing she, work. She does do a very very good job. Um, ben Siller directs the first three. Uh, Miss McArdle directs the next three, and then Ben Siller <laughs> returns for the. Final three, and uh, the casting is also exquisite. Britt Lauer is an actress I was not familiar with, plays Helly, who's the first character we meet in the show, is the new girl in the office, and she... Uh, she's not having it. She's not she having, not having it at all. She, yeah. she brings a really fun energy to it. Torturo is just fucking crushing it uh, mm-hmm. in a part that I feel like it's kind of the soul of the show, but can easily fade into the background if not for someone who was putting as much sort of mustard into it as John Turturro is. Uh, Arquette's having one. Zach Cherry of the UCB, who was even like when I did my, I did like, uh, what's it called? They, I mean, UCB is 
basically dead now. But they had the ass cat thing where he was one mm-hmm. of the improvers, like mod- doing improv of my dumb childhood of your stories. Oh, cool. of, yeah, yeah, of seeing a Jurassic Park and shitting my pants when I was like 10 years old. Um, but he Are we is. We're talking about hol- Tramel Tillman. Holding his own. Uh, Tramel Tillman is so Milchick. good. He's so good. This upcoming episode called Defiant Jazz, he has like a great scene. Yeah, there's a lot of good dancing in this show. I've never seen him in anything before. <laughs> and he's mind-blowing. Yeah, great dancing, yeah. great visuals. His name so it, uh, does not have a hyperlink on Wikipedia. That's, you know. We, I, seem, to, a, we seem to like it a lot. He's a New York wanna, theater guy, it seems. It's But it's part of an interesting, uh, sorry, Dave, I just on yeah. that last thought about Tramiel Tillman, that it's just, there is a really interesting dichotomy that we're sort of dancing around about these very, very famous and well-known actors and these sort of, uh, these people, whether they come from improv or the New York theater stage or, or uh, whatever the case might be, that are less recognizable. And I think the show is really knowingly playing those two energies against one another, um, even if the characters are sort of lumped together and it's not simply that the more famous characters are in positions of power versus the less famous character. But there is this sort of um, idea that everyone, who people are in the outside world is thrown into chaos in you know the Lumen basement. And I think that is true in sort of a meta self-reflexive way mm. with the nature of the casting. Uh, patches. Um, am I going to get to the end of this series and be like, oh, this was just Jordan Peele's Us with work? Um, no. I don't, well, mm. I'm not going to spoil anything. That's an interesting, I haven't really thought of Us while watching this, um, mostly because the people in Lumen are the people on the outside and their connections are well, it's a tethered and the sever- severed and well, and every- are, but everyone's aware everyone's aware of the deal on both sides even if they don't get the the right. mm. and that's i i mean we have that, that into does this make a it little very, bit very complicated. i believe correct me if i'm wrong we have seen um the woman's audi we have we have seen hey helly's audi no. talking to her a little no. bit like through a video yes screen. yes yeah she, she, oh, denied, yes. she denied her her she, rights as a person to get a little spoilery she tries to kill herself in the lumen office setting um and and her audi records a video and is like sit down you work yeah fuck you and you're that's not all you're, you do you're, you're not, not a real person, person. Is what you are not a her, person yeah. um and that really struck me like when that's when it i really think those events they, happen they, in the reverse order that you mentioned them but uh yes well, anyway, she has then, tried to escape multiple times at that point. Is Michael Turnus in the yeah. show? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm severed. Uh, but that speaks to just like, I, I feel like every episode is mounting bigger and bigger. Not questions about the mystery necessarily, but the gravity of the situation where I'm just as intrigued by Adam Scott's mark on the outside and him dealing with the loss of his wife, why he got severed, what he's going through, and how he's starting to, he's been reached at a certain point um, by a, a, his former coworker, who you're never supposed to meet. They're never supposed to see each other on the outside. Um, and now his world is being disrupted. He is understanding the labor issues at the center of this. And he has this whole kind of like investigation spotlight or all the presidents met or something. This kind of like conspiracy thriller playing on the outside. And I, I feel like the world is continuing to grow, grow, grow. I don't know if you would even by the end of the season, which I have seen uh, because of screeners, but I'm not going to, you know, I won't spoil anything, but like I didn't go to us necessarily. I feel like us has one comment 
to make, and that's what a movie can do. But I see this world as pretty big. Like I and mm. my and my investment in the show, I will just say there's definitely more seasons of Severance to to explore what it's chasing. Oh, interesting. I mean, because that's it, to go back to Lost. That's the that's the difficult thing. I think when we were talking about Yellow Jackets earlier this year, I was sort of like charmed by how it was flying at the seat of their pants. But this has been so well structured so far. Mm-hmm. I would be very hesitant to be like, surely they could do this for three more seasons, but I'm excited that you think they can. Yeah, yeah I would I mean, say, I, I, to tease the finale, it's just nothing like I would have ever expected. And it was, it made my heart race. It was a pretty intense bit of television. It's a really they good are finale, and they a, a second season as we speak, for sure. Uh, and they do a good job of of reserving mysteries, like I was saying. Like, there's just a lot of things that are teased in this first season that don't get um they don't get into. I wanted to jump back with Patches talking about the outer world because I do like I think in my first a couple episodes of the show that was part I was like, all right, like you know he's sad and he misses his wife, but um Jen Tullock who plays um his sister who is she's giving a performance that is so different from all the people who you see inside the office. Like the, the tone of severance is so like stilted and everyone figuring it out. And it's still funny and like enjoyable, but she's so like alive and warm and lives in this like beautiful modernist house. And I think the contrast of that is so essential to making the show work that you see these two different realities that he is, that he is trapped between and where they maybe potentially meet in the middle. And there's a bunch of stuff that's happening in the outside world, like just on the periphery that is, super interesting and where a lot of the world building looks like it could expand into at any given moment mm-hmm. but again every time i think that i'm supposed to be focusing on that something happens and i'm like nope back back to my back to the center yeah back to oh, the baby is, goats this, what are those yeah goats maybe about? this maybe this actually is just about the people that i'm watching i don't know i don't know how big it gets how strong it gets we could be de- dealing with like a dharma initiative or we could be dealing with the hanzo corporation i don't know what? Those are lost terms. <laughs> How do you? What are the two? What is the difference there for you in terms of just like what it means narratively? Or I, I, I don't even uh, understand. I, w- I would say Dharma would be something like maybe Kier is a cult leader, and we're dealing more with a small sect of people that have managed to uh, bewitch a money-giving power in order to run some crazy experiments that are about finding an island god. Or maybe we are dealing something more with the Hanzo Corporation, which is giant pharmaceutical company lumen just has enough money to go this deep and all these crazy things i mean if, they found if real life they anything, i feel like it can be both like i it feel like you both. can have a giant corporation like amazon but the the ceo of the company wants to go to space and for his own weird he's got yeah. weird shit going on like I, I think I, you could I, have both in this reality. I definitely allow that you know the, the, the mysteries at the heart of the show are going to get more airplay and that um, there are, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into what it all means and what Kier, who Kier is or was and what the company means. But I also think that, at least across the first six episodes of Severance, the show is less interested already than Lost, Lost ever was in letting the mystery be the driving force. I mean, it, it really seems to me more dialed in a way that I find really satisfying on the well, kind of feels of the like leftovers of the or something. Yeah, like, let, I mean, let's I have something it, it, crazy happen to the world and see how it is affecting lots of different. It people feels a lot closer. Yeah, it's a lot more behaviorally driven. It's a lot more yeah. about like sort of exploring what it means to be severed. I, I, I think 
the only places that I've really struggled with my suspension of disbelief is when they flirted in the six episodes I've seen with the idea of what severance severance means like in a political way. Uh, and the senator, state senator character who was lobbying for it and it comes up at dinner parties and um, it does feel like it's something that the world knows about. And yeah, that feels on the like street, a, right? yeah, yeah, it feels like a bit of a leap that the show hasn't really grappled with yet. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does feel like it's a little bit more interested in unpacking the, what all this sort of means conceptually, what it means emotionally than lost was which is always driven more a little bit by like what's a smoke monster like yeah they want you to they want you to be like what are scary numbers like what does it mean to to look through when they're bubbling up on this computer monitor why is there uh, a baby goat department um and not just so christopher walken can have an incredible line delivery about baby goats but i don't think the show needs for you to keep that top of mind in the way that lost did oh i mean i don't think it needs you to because i think that's why it's actually doing better is like they have their hand on the wheel with this one uh in a way that feels very assured whereas like i do feel like it's a ride or like something like a uh scripting magic trick because like yeah like i was saying before every scene is about something that i want to see it's just they're all so good and in such a specific sequence that I forget things sometimes about the baby goat room until Christopher Walken just brings it up in the context of 3D printing hatchets and watering cans. Like, uh, I just feel like they're very uh, specific about what's going to be revealed and what isn't, whereas stuff like season one and season two of Lost was still trying to find how you do that balance in storytelling and had to do it over like 22 episodes a season, which is insane now yeah but uh yeah it's better it's better for sure at handling what it is but i still think it's the same game it's just we're it's now a little of the same game but i will version. say i mean maybe this is to david's point too which is i feel like severance has revealed itself already where it's like it's not so much a mystery show because we we know what the problem is they have created new sentient life in the basement of lumen and now it's a conundrum like I don't know how all the characters can live to the end of the show because there are two versions of Adam Scott's Mark, one that lives on the, in the real world and one that lives in the basement of Lumen. So I, it's like the, there's drama to, and it, I feel like this is analogous to things that we deal with in everyday life, which is like, how do I quit Amazon? How do I stop? Mm. How do I actually destroy this evil corporation that I know is evil? And yet I cannot stop buying toilet paper from them. Like, how do I get rid of Amazon in my life? It should be really easy, and it is, and yet I still can't do it, and so many millions of people can't do it um, because it's just they've wrapped themselves around us. I feel like Severance is actually grappling with that issue, and that is the end game of the show for me. Like, how are they going to defeat something this big that has created so much, you know, in its own ecosphere? I don't know. And it's, so it's less of a mystery show and more of just like a, I don't know how you, how you save everybody. Hmm. I mean, I, that might be where it's going, but it's absolutely a mystery show. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I also like the idea of mapping the basement floor makes me feel like, a, like a, an RPG um, <laughs> of some kind. Yeah. You know, where you're trying to like create this mini map and then these these crazy infinite floors. I mean, 
there, there are a lot of fun modes that the show is uh, threading together. Um, and yeah, it's really exciting because you really don't. There's also a sense, you know, being on a streamer and having as much money poured into it as the show does that they can get away with a lot of things. And like they have the freedom and the flexibility to try things. I mean, when Christopher Walken first showed up on the show, I was like, what? Um, <laughs> uh, and and there he is. And he's playing, you know, sort of off the wall character and he's crushing it. And and they're free to chase down, you know, whatever alleys that that they want to, you know, without with, with still keeping the sort of tightness of the central idea and not letting it. Uh, completely spin out of control and it doesn't even go into sort of like lynchian territory where you're really um in this sort of dream logic like it does feel a lot tighter than that but uh yeah there is a sense of freedom that you can't really get from a network television show um not to again keep comparing it to lost but it, it is a, an exciting thing to make you want to keep coming back on a week-to-week basis and i hope to dave's point that whatever the long game is that they they know what it is well enough that and are able to uh, continue getting green lights to fund it for the two or three or four or five or however many seasons it's going to be and uh, execute at this level. Because I'm, yeah, I'm now, intrigued. I'm now wondering if Severance Season 1 is the kind of rise of the Planet of the Apes of the, the long game of this series where that movie was really kind of like small smaller stakes than any Planet of the Apes movie, but it obviously builds and builds and builds to greater apocalypse and and bigger world building i could see i mean this show going it could it could do that but it could also go back we have a whole hall of history that we only got to briefly see of how this company rose to where it was with severance and we pick up like people have talked about with like it's already reached the national conversation level so depending on where what they want to talk about you go forward you go backward you go all the around show's good. does time even matter more, Who cares? more severance yeah, Severance is good. Good job, guys. Good job, Apple TV. <laughs> Hulu. Apple Hulu. TV's having a good, uh, good spring. <laughs> that does it for this week's episode. Uh, you guys will be back next week. I won't. I'll be uh, recovering from staying up all night to cover the Oscars. Uh, it'll be fun. Be all back. night. All night long. Um, all night. That's right. It's going to be just like that. So very Lionel Richie. Um, anyway, I'll be back uh, in two weeks. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, deputy editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And we have a website, fightinginthewarm.com, where you can listen to old episodes of this show. When we were talking about deep water, I was thinking we had a whole episode about Gone Girl and tr- liking trash, good trash that I recall. And I'm sure that episode is, I don't know, probably okay to listen to now. Uh, so go listen to that. When did Gone Girl come out? Was that You think you, it's 2013? I was going to say 2013. It's 2014. Man, holy shit. <laughs> That's a long time ago. But we did an episode and it's about it's around to listen. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. Um, you can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich. You can find me on IndieWire, or I don't really know what I'm doing this week because this week is kind of a blur. But uh, I guess I'll be writing about some of the Oscar movies. Um, you can find me if you're in New York on Friday night at the uh, Lincoln Center Movie Theater, uh, where I will be talking to Daniels and maybe some other people from the movie. I'm not entirely sure yet. After screenings of Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is maybe my favorite movie of the year so far, and highly recommended. 
You can find all of us together on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Go on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. We'll read it live on the show. And if you would rather go a different route, especially if you're not in the United States, Dave, tell the folks where they can email us. Well, you can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. That's where you could reach the show. Send us your international reviews. We'd love it. Uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. You could follow me on Twitter at DA7E and listen to my other podcast with uh, Joanna Robinson and Neil Miller. It's called uh, Trial by Content, and we debate pop culture topics. Check it out. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. I was just looking at our archives to see if I could find the Gone Girl episode easily, and I found an episode from June 2016 titled, What Happens When This Week Sucks? It took me a while to remember what happened in June 2016 because we think of that as the only, as it was before so many of the terrible things that came after. <laughs> I believe it was the week of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, which oh was, my God. in fact, pretty terrible. Sweet. Anyway, 2016, what a time. Uh, you can find me uh, on the Little Goldman podcast uh, covering the Oscars the morning after them. Not too, uh, I'm bailing on you guys. I can do my other podcast. I promise I won't do it again until next year. Um, and follow uh, Oscar coverage on Vanity Fair. Uh, there's going to be so much of it. I'll be a big part of a lot of it. And also this week on Little Gold Men, we predicted all the Oscar categories. Flawless prediction. None of them will be wrong. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can tell Patches why Coda's going to win Best Picture, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of the Lost City, what country would you get lost in if it meant Brad Pitt and Channing Tatum rescuing you? Thanks for listening, and some of us will be back talking to you next week. I'm done.